Step into the mic today, UVA's all-time leading scorer, former NBA first-round pick, and current assistant coach at ODU, Bryant Stith. Now, let's start with the UVA part of it, okay? Because they say records are meant to be broken. And uh, I used to cover UVA for a while, so props to uh, Coach Tony Bennett down there as well. And those 2,500 points, not only has that record not been broken since you said it in 1992, but I think we've only had one or two players come within 500 points and 1,000 points of that record since then. So, one, do you think that record will ever be broken? What does it mean for you to still hold that record uh, 25, almost 30 years later, man? That even sounds crazy to say. Man, I'm just extremely humble. Uh, uh, you know, when you think of an accomplishment like that, and, you know, first of all, you know, I had to, you know, have a, a coaching staff that believed in what I could do out there on the court. And then I had to have teammates, you know, who were so supportive of me on the floor. And, you know, to, to score that many points, you know, during my career with all of the great players that have been through the University of Virginia um, a basketball program, I mean, it's truly humbling. And, you know, with the new rules um, in the NBA draft and, you know, with players leaving early, it's just going to be hard to see a player stand four years um, scoring that many points because if you're that good, um, most players are going to leave uh, before their eligibility is up. So, I mean, you know, uh, with the combination of luck and, you know, me, you know, being able to score a lot of points, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, that record, you know, has, uh, you know, stood for so long. You know, you bring up a great point about the current NBA and the way that I see it is, you know, a guy like you who spends four years in college playing well, then you get to the league and it's not really until your second year that you're able to start and make an impact. Uh, let's go back to that second year, though. 93-94, I believe that's the year that as an eight seed, you guys beat the Sonics as the one seed. So you wait all that time to get to the league and finally get your opportunity. How incredible was the feeling for all that hard work to pay off and, and get that win and one that we all remember and will never forget? Well, I mean, it's ironic because the situation that I stepped into with the Nuggets um, in, in my 92-93 season was very similar to what I – stepped into at the University of Virginia. Um, they, my first year, it was a young team. We were growing. You know, we had one or two veterans on the team who, you know, provided great leadership, but we were still kind of feeling our way. And then that second year, uh, and, and by the way, my first year, uh, I sustained two injuries um, that, you know, wherein I had never been hurt uh, before in my entire career, not in high school, not at the University of Virginia. Um, I broke my foot in the very first game I ever started against Detroit. And then I came back, worked my way back into the starting lineup my rookie year. And then I broke my hand, which ended my season. So my first year was basically, you know, to me, it was just a throwaway year. You know, I was having such a great year too. I thought that I had an opportunity to make the all rookie team. So that second season, when we came into uh, a training camp, everybody had something to prove, and we were extremely hungry. Um, Dikembe Mutombo, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, LaFonso Ellis, uh, Reggie Williams. Um, you know, we, we just had a host of, of players who were looking to resurrect their career, 
or looking to make their mark in the league. And it just all came together toward the end of the season where we started playing our best basketball. And that's when we happened to upset, you know, the Seattle Supersonics led by Gary Payton and Sean Kemp. You know, when you mention Mahmoud and I, and I see the current situation around sports with whether it's kneeling for the national anthem, players boycotting, and I remember um, what he went through and his career, what happened with him when he took his stance against the national anthem. Were you on the team when that happened? And was there any dissent within the team back then, considering everything we see publicized now? No, I, I was the captain of the team, you know, when all of that transpired. And, you know, the, the funny thing about that is, you know, Mark Moo had not been standing for the flag the entire season. I mean, he was very devoted to his religion. He had very strong beliefs on, you know, the, the country, the American flag, what he felt it stood for. And it, in the locker room, we will always have friendly debates about his ideas. So, you know, we, we were comfortable with Mark Mood taking the stance that he did, but the public um, did not realize it, you know, until later on in the season. And it took only one fan to, to recognize that Mark Mood wasn't standing for the national anthem. He called into a local radio station in Denver and it just blew it all out of proportion. And it forced players it forced management to take a side it forced the nba to make a stance and at that time obviously um you know the the nba management wasn't ready to step up and defend his players um in their personal views like the current nba um presently he says when you think about that team though and you know just on on paper in their collective careers it sounds like an nba all-star team um, you guys had a wealth of talent. Uh, talk about, you know, what you guys looked at as you started that second year and that uh, the mentality of, as you mentioned, resurrecting careers, seeing the vision of where that team could go, because obviously there's a load of talent there. Man, we, we were loaded with talent. I mean, you, you think back to our leadership. You know, we had Reggie Williams who is no stranger to success. You know, he was a champion since his days, you know, back at Dunbar. I mean, <laughs> going through Georgetown. You know, you think of Mahmoud Raouf, the career he had at LSU. He was a prolific scorer. And if Mahmoud was in his prime playing in today's NBA game, you know, there wouldn't be much difference between him and, and, and uh, Steph Curry. He was that type of player. Um, and then, you know, you had the young guns. You had Dikembe Mutombo, who was a rising star. He was a defensive stud. You know, he anchored our defense. He gave us the ability to stretch our defense and pressure out from the basket because we knew the big fellow was coming. He was going to protect the rack. And then you had, you know, uh, LaFonso Ellis and I who were drafted together in the 1992 draft. So we had a great nucleus. We were young. We were hungry. And everybody was on a mission. You know, there weren't any uh, personal agendas. Everybody was playing for one another. And that team was so close off the court. So our cohesion on the court came very quickly. And it just seemed like, you know, it was the perfect storm, you know, for 
for us when we played against Seattle and we just started playing our best basketball of the year. That's fantastic, B. Uh, so you mentioned had Mahmoud played in today's NBA. So let's juxtapose that team and your and let's talk about the current Nuggets roster, which like your time when you got to, to the Nuggets is very loaded with a lot of young talent. And then there's a, a smattering of some seasoned veterans in there. Obviously, they ended up living up to expectations by coming back from three ones, you know, potential sweeps, uh, the gentleman sweeps in this uh, in the bubble this year had a, pr- a pretty good postseason. Um, how do you view this Nuggets team? Not necessarily in comparison, but where do you see the the you know the the similarities between the team that you played for and then what the Nuggets currently have on the roster? I mean, the, the, the similarities are uncanny. When I was watching NBA playoffs, I just kept, you know, uh, going back to our 94 season. Um, you know, when, when you compare the two teams, you know, you had – both teams had a dynamic scoring point guard. Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, Jamal Murray. Both teams had an outstanding center you know, uh, uh, Jokic and also Dikembe. And then that was complemented by a host of other players who were just stepping up and making plays at different times. So the similarities are great. Um, the, the only difference going forward is, you know, I just hope that the management of the Nuggets will be willing to keep that team together longer than what, um, you know, happened with our team Uh, back in 94, because, you know, we had a great run. Everybody was very high on the Nuggets after our 94 season. We went to the playoffs in um, in 95, and we were swept by the San Antonio Spurs, um, you know, led by, you know, David Robinson when he had his great season. And then after that, it just felt like, um, you know, the, the management broke our team up. And I regret that to this day because it changed all of our careers who were on that team. You know, it's incredible you mentioned that because um, during game one of the NBA finals was hosting the show with uh, Greg Anthony. And he said, oh, the championship in the future is going through Denver. <laughs> and we kind of had an open debate about it, like what? But he, that's what he foresees and he really meant it. And when I see Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, 25 and younger, and seeing them able to advance to the Western Conference Finals, it's almost as if they matured a year or two before we expected them to. Um, If this core stays together, do you agree with GA that your former team, uh, when LeBron is, we keep waiting for us to be like, he said it, it's all said and done with him. But when he, he does, you know, finally start to decline, do you think the championship goes through Denver. Do you think they're going to be the best team out West if this core stays together for the next, I don't know, five to 10 years? I definitely think if this team stays together, I think the, the, the two best teams, in my opinion, are uh, the Denver Nuggets and the Dallas Mavericks. Um, but there's always that elephant in the room that's called free agency. The Lakers aren't going to stay down for long. The Boston Celtics are not going to stay down for long. The Miami Heat, you know, Pat Riley, you know, he's not going to continue to accept not winning championships. So there's always going to be an appeal for those young players at Denver to leave. How committed 
are they to the process there in Denver? And can the Nuggets and will management be willing to pay the, the financial sums it takes to, to hold that nucleus together for them to be able to compete for championships? You know, that's yet to be determined. Yeah, they certainly got a, a great core. And hopefully they do keep that team together because they're fun to watch. TJ, um, you know, one of the things I, I saw with Bryant was the fact that he coached his sons in college. And I was trying to figure out if he coached them in high school, too. I know you would know more about that. So enlighten us. Uh, so let's just take it back. Bryant Stitt returns to his alma mater back in Lawrenceville at Lawrenceville High School. Uh, where he took his team to state championships. He, he built his legendary career there before coming on to the University of Virginia. But then as he returns as a head coach, gets an opportunity to take his, his high school team, and he also coached both his sons, Brandon and B.J. Bryant, Bryant Jr., and uh, takes them to, now correct me if I'm wrong, beat three straight uh, state finals? Seven. Seven. Oh wow! <laughs> wow. Now, please forgive me, B. Uh, you know, you won three. Did you? You won three, and you went seven times. Went seven times. I I, I felt like uh, I lost my first four. Uh, I felt like the Marv Levy of high school basketball in the <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to never get over that hump, man. Um, but I lost to some some pretty good basketball teams. Uh, you know. Uh, we lost my first state championship to Troy Daniels and Jamal Hagens. You know, Troy Daniels has had a long, successful career in the NBA. Um, uh, my second year, we lost to Eric Green, who uh, played for the Utah Jazz for, you know, many years. And, and my third year, we lost to the seven-footer who ended up going to Vanderbilt. So, you know, back then, you know, we didn't know how good those players were. We just knew we lost to a pretty good team. Uh, my fans, they didn't care uh, who those guys were. They, all they knew was that this NBA star came back home and he's lost four straight state championships. <laughs> we looking for another head coach. <laughs> so um, I was blessed um, to have my first state championship led by Javante Green, who went to – uh, Rafford University had three great years overseas and signed a free agent contract this year with the Boston Celtics. Um, and, you know, he was teamed with Brandon and BJ. Uh, and, you know, that was the first of three state championships that, uh, that we won at Brunswick. So it, it, it needed the stiff factor to, you know, it, you need to inject the stiff factor. You needed both boys and, <laughs> and head coach dad to get that first national championship. I get it, B-Stiff. I mean, you guys come from great stock. We know that. We know that for certain. So, you know, so then in a strange juxtaposition, uh, you end up coaching not only your boys, not only in high school, but then ultimately both of them end up at Old Dominion coming through different paths. Brandon going through East Carolina initially and then transferring to Old Dominion. And then BJ going to our alma mater at UVA and then ultimately transferring over uh, to Old Dominion. Now you add your college roommate and probably your best friend in the world, uh, Anthony, <clears throat> and his son now is is uh, is at Old Dominion. So you know, talk about that family atmosphere and how it felt to be able to coach your boys also in college at Old Dominion. Well, I, I, you you're very familiar with the culture that we have um, up in Charlottesville. You know, uh, we were very close as a team. 
We remain close to this day. So that's the same culture that Coach Jones brought to Old Dominion when he got here. Um, Brandon had success at East Carolina. Um, uh, he loved the coaches. He loved his teammates there. But he also had an eye on what we were doing at Old Dominion. Um, you know, we would talk every day. So we would share our experiences. And he, he, he heard how uh, we were having such a good time, what we were building. We were starting to turn on her. Um, you know, we went to uh, Madison Square Garden, you know, led by Trey Freeman. So he was able to see that. BJ was at the University of Virginia. He didn't have as much success early on the court. Um, you know, he was playing behind two pros. He was playing behind Justin Anderson, and he was playing behind Malcolm Brogdon. So, you know, when, when they came out of high school, their thought process was, I'm willing to wait on my success. Uh, I'm willing to wait my turn. I'm willing to put in my time. But yet and still, they saw what we were doing down at Old Dominion, and it just got to a point where um, they just felt that uh, they wanted to, you know, reunite, and we were happy for it because from 2014 to 2019, we won more conference games in Conference USA, overall winning percentage. All of that was greater, you know, when we added, you know, uh, Brandon and BJ to the squad along with uh, many other uh, great players that played at Old Dominion from that time. You talk about the family atmosphere, and yes, we are very familiar with that as our former head coach uh, and now your current head coach, Jeff Jones, who we've had on the show. Um, he talked about in uh, September was uh, prostate cancer awareness. Uh, he talked about his challenges, um, but he also mentioned your support as an associate or as assistant head coach to help lead this team during his challenges. Um, obviously, every head coach, every assistant coach wants to have their own program at some point in time. You've been a head coach at high school. Um, being a supportive coach during that time in this family atmosphere. Uh, tell us about your, your mental um, direction as you led this program and helped lead the team while Jeff was uh, dealing with his challenges. Well, I mean, you know, you're only strong as your weakest link. And Coach Jones put together a staff when he came down here to Old Dominion, um, you know, that, that takes a back seat to no one. Um, so when Coach Jones was going through, you know, his challenges, we all had to step up. We all had to be a little bit better in order to take that pressure off of him. And, you know, we were able to be there for him. We were able to give him the space he needed in order to handle his business off the court, you know, you know dealing with his health issues. And it allowed us to be able to go out there and grow as coaches. So, I mean, you know, we, we just all just assume a little bit more responsibility to give Coach Jones the time he needed to uh, recover. And, you know, Coach Jones is so strong, man. I mean, he was a great example of how you deal with adversity and you never stop moving forward. He was an inspiration to the staff. He was inspiration to his players. And, you know, our guys went out there and just laid it on the line every single night for him. And it culminated with a 2019 Conference USA uh, championship. 
You know, there's been a lot of talk about family on this podcast and things hitting close to home, but uh, COVID-19 for you became a, a very real a part of your life. Uh, what was that experience like and what did you learn from that? I learned that it can touch anybody at any place at any time. Uh, I felt that my family uh, did everything that we were supposed to. Uh, we didn't go out of the house when we did. We wore our masks. We were social distancing. We were very conscious of what we were supposed to do. We were watching the news 24-7. We were soaking in all of that information. We were very vigilant around strangers. The mistake that we made, um, we both wanted to go home and visit our parents on Mother's Day. And um, I went to see my mom. I come from a small family. Everything was good. My wife comes from a larger family where she has seven older brothers and their kids. So when we went over to my mother's-in-law's house, there were a lot of people gathered in a small, tight space. We had reservations about going in, but we just never thought that um, the virus could be transmitted through people that we've known all our lives. And we let our guard down for a second and it jumped on us. Um, so my message to everybody that I've seen since then, no matter who it is, no matter how long you've known a person, you still have to practice those, those uh, health protocols in order to keep your safe and your, your family safe as well. So that was a hard lesson for us to learn. It came at the most inopportune time because I had just lost my father. Now, my, me and my entire family, with the exception of Brandon, um, had contracted the virus, and it was a six weeks that uh, I'll never forget in my entire life. That was probably the toughest moment that I ever had to experience since I've been living on here on, on God's Green Earth. Now, they say a large percentage of people are asymptomatic. For you, uh, did you have symptoms? What was the hardest part of it? Yeah, my my, aunt, my entire family um, exhibited, you know, um, symptoms with the exception of Brandon. Um, you know, Brandon, you know, did not have a fever or cough or anything. Um, my wife, um, BJ, Bria, and Brooke, they had mild symptoms. They had the fever. They had a cough. Um, you know, they lost their appetite. Um, initially, that's what I had. And then... I felt better. And then after two days, it came back on me with a vengeance and um, it knocked me, knocked me down for about a week. Then it started affecting my respiratory system. I was having trouble breathing. It felt like somebody 300 pounds was sitting on my chest. That's when I got you know, concerned and that's when I went to the hospital. Certainly hearing your story, it seems to be uh, the true story of COVID-19 in the sense that you can take all the precautions, um, you can be good. At some point, you want to see family, but you still have to be cautious when you do that. And it affects everyone differently. Uh, like you said, the, you know, the people in your family who had mild symptoms, uh, your son didn't have any symptoms, but yet you dealt with the severe symptoms. And that seems to be the, the story of COVID, TJ. I mean, this is something that we hope that people are taking seriously. We know the NBA has with the way that they, they had the, uh, the bubble and, and it came out well. But, TJ, it, it seems like this is something that um, 
not everyone is taken seriously. And I hope as we get back to basketball that people are being precautious as well. Yeah, I agree, Chris. You know, when you talk about um, leadership, um, that's been talked about. That's been tossed around during this podcast this morning. Um, you know, when we look at the leadership uh, that we currently have in this country, uh, there are a lot of um, confusing viewpoints, uh, and it's been more politicized than it is about let's follow the science, let's follow those who study this uh, uh, more specifically. This is their job to know what's going on. Um, so it's no wonder that as we look around this country, we have more than 200,000 that have that have succumbed to this virus. And you could say that a lack of leadership has played a, a, an important role in, in, in those people losing their lives. We could have probably saved a lot more had we just stopped politicizing this situation and making it more about the science and follow those who, uh, who lead us in that direction. Um, so yeah, thank God for the Stiff family and them coming through this, uh, this challenge. You know, we're thankful for them uh, having survived and having gone through it to be able to tell us and share the story. Uh, so hopefully those can those who have not been taking it as seriously can now make a, a U-turn and start, you know, listening to the protocols. Absolutely. And again, my, my biggest, biggest message to, to the audience that's listening is that, you know, we, we were uncomfortable wearing a mask around our family because we thought that, you know, it, it was a sign of betrayal. You know, how dare you walk into your mom's house with a mask on? But if you really love somebody, it's easy to do, particularly if your parents are older. You don't want to put them in harm's way because we could be a carrier. So please take the necessary precautions, um, whether it's around the people you've known for all your life, whether it's the person you love the, 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 the most, take those precautions because this virus is serious. So uh, switching gears here to your time after you were done in the NBA and before uh, you broke through as a coach, I looked it up and I said, wait, hold on. Was he involved in NASCAR? No, Michael Jordan's getting a lot of attention from buying a NASCAR team. I'm like 2004, man, I was covering NASCAR at that time. I mean, I wish I would have seen you out there at some point because I'm just saying it was lonely for a brother. I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, there were times I had to cover it, and I'm like, all right, at some point I'll see another black person. So for you, how did you get involved uh, with Hermie Sadler back in, in 2003 and 2004 owning a NASCAR team? Well, Herman and I basically grew up together. Um, my, my dad, you know, used to be a long-distance truck driver. So uh, the business that he was in, you know, always, um, you know, seemed to intersect with the Sadler family because, you know, one of their, their, their largest businesses is Sadler Oil. So my dad used to always be down at the truck stop, at, their, um, at the shop. And, you know, we always used to conversate. We developed a great relationship while we were in high school. Um, and we always had a, a friendly rivalry when we went to college because Hermie went to the University of North Carolina. I was at UVA. And, you know, we always, you know, used to be going back and forth at one another. So our friendship grew when we were youngsters. Um, Hermie went on to have a very successful NASCAR career. Uh, he was rookie of the year, you know, there on the circuit. And there was an opportunity where he asked me to join, you know, his ownership team. Um, I went out there, you know, I had a, a great time. 
And by the way, I read a, a few of those races. You know, I was, <laughs> I was inside the Oval. Um, and it, it was a neat experience for me because uh, it was a different world. I got a chance to learn, you know, uh, on a different level uh, in a different sport, you know, how things operated at such a high level. Um, and then basketball came calling and I had to make a decision because, you know, if, if I'm going to be involved in it, you know, I'm not going to have one foot in or one foot out. And then I made the decision to follow my dream of, uh, of being a head coach someday uh, at the next level. Yeah, those, uh, those guys in the pit crew, TJ, they are athletic. Like, people don't get it. They get down there, get the tires off as fast as they jump over. I'm like, okay, that we need to be paying a little bit more attention to them and time than them every time, Get the, you know, because uh, what they do is truly incredible. So I'm glad you got a, a front row seat to that, too. Yeah, yeah I've watched documentaries uh, and, and, you know, 30 for 30s on these pit crews and how precision, how much precision and the timing of getting these cars turned around and serviced and back out on the, you know, every second count. So uh, I can imagine the grueling practices that they go through on a daily basis to get things prepared. B. Stiz, you talked about the rivalries, and you mentioned a couple of ACC foes. Uh, I want to harken back to your recruiting process uh, coming out of Lawrenceville High School, valedictorian Chris of his high school class. So it's no surprise, as polished as he is on this podcast, he comes by it honestly. But uh, our producer, Andre Jones, who you remember very well uh, from our days at, at UVA, talked about a book that he read from Coach Krzyzewski that mentioned you and how bad they wanted you to be a Duke Blue Devil. Talk about your recruitment process and how you ultimately ended up at, in Charlottesville. Uh, man, my, my recruitment process, man, was, uh, was tremendous, man. Again, um, uh, from a small-town kid, man, growing up in Southside Virginia, rural Southside Virginia, I had no idea that those legends would be converging you know, um, you know, in my living room, you know, wanting me to play for their school. Um, going back to the ninth grade, you know, the the high school all-star, the high school camp circuit at the time is very small. So you develop relationships and you friendly rivalries over the years, playing at five-star and prep star at Nike ABCD camp. And, you know, you start developing relationships. Well, Christian Leitner and I, you know, we developed uh, a relationship. Christian and I, we went on four of our official visits together. Um, you know, we, we went to uh, Villanova on the same official visit. We went to University of Virginia on the same official visit. We went to um, Duke uh, the same weekend on, on an official visit. And back then, if you remember, um, Whatever school wanted you the most, that school came into your house on the last day of recruiting mm -hmm. because they wanted to make the final pitch for you to come to their school. Well, Duke went to um, Christian Leitner's home on the final day of recruiting, and the University of Virginia came to mind. So when I went to Duke, um, man, my mom loved Coach K. She loved everything about Duke. <laughs> She had her soul. My, if my mom could have signed on the dotted line, I would have been a blue devil. Um, my dad was more open-minded. He was more like me. And there was one question that I asked Coach K, um, you know, on, my, on, my, on their home visit, um, you know, to my house. 
they asked, I asked them, I said, listen, I said, no, I don't care about starting, but I do want to have the opportunity to play. Do you think I would have the opportunity to start as a freshman um, at Duke? And do you have a, 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 a role for me to play, um, even coming off of the bench? Where do you see me fitting in? And he told me, no, uh, I don't think that you can uh, beat out Robert Bricky, who had a brilliant rookie campaign um, there at, at, in Durham. He said, I don't think that you're going to be able to beat out him. Um, so, you know, you, you may have to wait your turn. So I asked the same question to Coach Holland when they came into our living room. And he said, Brian, I can't promise you that you're going to start, but you will not um, be uh, disappointed in your playing time, you know, as a freshman at the University of Virginia. And I said, well, where do you want me to sign? You know, that's all I, <laughs> that's all I wanted. That's all I wanted to do. Um, you know, I just wanted to be able to get out there on the court. I wanted to be able to play, make an impact, you know, as, as a freshman and be able to uh, grow my brand. And that was the reason why I chose the University of Virginia over everyone else. Well, wise choice, because obviously you ended up as the school's all-time leading scorer. And that's how we started this podcast. And that's where we finish. We understand now how that happened. Coach K said, nah, maybe you play, maybe you won't play. Then you went to, to UVA. Brian Stith, uh, thank you for stepping to the mic today. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, big fella. Appreciate you, man. He's he's a stiff man. He's a stiff man. <laughs> hey, we were we hey, we were a hell of a tandem, man, up in Charlottesville, man. No doubt about it. A lot of no good doubt. years, a lot of good basketball during that time. Be stiff. I know you got a roll, baby. Thanks for doing this, man. Much appreciated. My best to the family, the coaching staff, and kick Dennis Wolf in the ass for me when you see him. <laughs> I will, man. I'll let the Wolf man know. Not mine. Love you, boy. I appreciate you. Oh,